Many things in life we take for granted. And normally we think about uh, taking things for granted in, in a negative way. It usually has a negative uh, connotation when you say that, but uh, it's not necessarily wrong to take certain things for granted. We make assumptions, and it's only natural that we do make uh, assumptions. We take for granted that the sun will rise tomorrow. You don't think about it. You assume that it's going to happen. You take it for granted. You just know that that's the way it is, and that's going, going to be the way it is. You also take for granted a lot of things that are actually a lot less certain than the sun rising tomorrow. But you still take them for granted because in life, if you're going to live day to day, you kind of have to take certain things uh, for granted. You have to make certain assumptions uh, in life. Um, that includes some man-made things. I'm sure a lot of you keep money in banks, don't you? Uh, how do you know that they're going to give your money back? <laughs> Just hand over <laughs> this money to, <laughs> to these people that you've never met before, uh, and you take for granted that when the time comes that it's still going to be there and they're going to give it back to you when you need it. You don't think about that. Uh, you take for granted the, that the money's going to be there. Now, why do you take that for granted? Well, you take, for, take it for granted in that case because there's a promise. There's a promise, um, a legally binding promise in this case that, uh, that, that when you need the money, they've promised that it's going to be there for you. Um, and they make that promise, um, in the case of a bank, in exchange for your leaving the money there in the first place. Without that promise, you, you wouldn't leave it there. You wouldn't be able to count on it. Uh, but, uh, but because of that promise, you take it for granted that the money's going to be there. And uh, you probably don't spend much time day to day thinking about what's going to happen to you if they break that promise because you assume they'll keep it. It's not always bad to take things for granted. It is bad if it means that you're not thankful, that, uh, that you're, you're not grateful. That's what makes it bad. But consider your marriage vows. Consider the vows, uh, the covenant vows between a husband and wife. Men, when you enter into a marriage covenant and promise to love and cherish your wife for as long as you live, do you want your wife to wonder whether you're going to keep that promise? Or do you want her to be able to take that to the bank? Is that, is, you consider that a good thing if, if your wife wonders every day, um, is he going to keep his promise? Is he going to keep that vow or is he going to leave me? No, you don't want your wife to think that, do you? You want her to know for a certainty that you will keep it. In sickness and health, for richer or poorer, you want her to know that however much everything else in life may be subject to change, she can take it for granted that your promise of love for her will be a solid rock that will never be moved. Isn't that what you want? Well, God's word is a promise. It is a gracious promise that he very much wants you to know will never be moved, will be a solid rock. He wants you, in that sense, to be able to take it for granted, and you can. Not in the sense that you are ungrateful or unthankful, but in the sense that you never for a second have cause to doubt it. He will keep it. Psalm 119, we have heard it read, and we have sung it this morning. 
Psalm 119, uh, verse 123 says, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. It is the promises of God that stand as the solid rock and the foundation for our walk with the Lord. Verse 123 is, uh, it appears, three verses into the 16th stanza of Psalm 119, which is what we have read and sung today. That stanza is our text this morning, and it speaks of justice. Uh, Justice is a theme here in this stanza. And uh, the psalmist in this stanza asks God for justice and for protection and judgment on the basis of a rather remarkable claim in verse 121. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. The first two verses of this stanza are saying, protect me from my oppressors, God, because they've broken your law while I have done right. Now, this is remarkable, and I say this is remarkable because if there's anyone who can face God's judgment with confidence on the basis of having done right, it is not me, and I... Uh, propose that it is not you. But as we read this psalm together as a whole, this stanza, we will understand. We will understand the psalmist's meaning, and uh, we will understand why he prays this way in the context of the stanza together. Like all of the psalms, this is a prayer. And the reason the psalmist can pray this way is because he stands on the gracious promises of God. That's why verse 123 is the one that I read first. Uh, It's the one that I cited first. It's an important key to this stanza. It tells us exactly what the source of our confidence is. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. We'll come back to the first two verses of the stanza uh, in a little while, but first... We need to see that the solid rock foundation of the psalmist's prayer in this stanza rests on the concrete promises of God. It is in what God has promised in his word. It is, above all, in the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. The psalmist prays for salvation here because he needs salvation. It is not enough to stand on his own strength. He cannot stand on his own strength, he must be saved, and he needs a savior. As we consider the stanza as a whole, we'll examine several key principles concerning the nature of those promises and what they mean for us. God's promises are gracious. God's promises sustain us in every good work and word. God's promises protect us from harm. And God's promises are fulfilled by God's work alone according to his timing. First of all, they are gracious. Verse 124 says, and asks God, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. I said before that verse 123 is an important key to this stanza. But this one is just as central. If you read verse 121 in complete isolation, then you might think, well, I guess I'm out of luck because this can't offer me any protection against my oppressors because I certainly have not done what is just and right. 
That's why we don't read Bible verses out of context in isolation, but we read them together. See, this first clause in verse 124 is so clear. The psalmist asks God to deal with him not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of God's steadfast love. The word translated in the English English Standard Version uh, as love means kindness or mercy. And other translations do translate the word as mercy. And it specifically and and frequently uh, relates to mercy that is given to the lowly, to the needy, to the miserable. It is not earned. It is God's favor, not because we earned it, but because we need it. In other words, it is grace. It is undeserved favor that he gives freely because you need it. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the same word is used to describe God's faithfulness to keep his gracious promises. And that sense of the word is certainly at work here. Verse 123 is the foundation for verse 124. We see the psalmist longing for the promises of God. And on the foundation of those promises, he asks God to deal with him on the basis of grace. God, I'm asking you to deal with me according to your love. And why can I ask that? Because you've promised graciously. Had God not promised then I would have no basis to ask for anything except for the judgment and death that my sin deserves. But because he has promised, I can approach with confidence the throne of God and ask for grace, and not only ask for it, but to know that I will receive it. Now, the theological foundation of this stanza starts to take shape. We know that the psalmist is resting on the grace of God according to his promises. But that grace does not mean that the psalmist is free to ignore the law of God. In fact, we're reminded of uh, the words of Christ in Matthew 5.17 that our Lord came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And not an iota or dot will pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus said, whoever relaxes One of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. We are under grace. We rest on the gracious promises of God. Yet that is no cause to sin by violating the law of God. Of course, that's what the Apostle Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 6, isn't it? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the moral law of God is still very much in full force and effect. But the second clause in verse 124 and verse 125 show where the power uh, for us to obey the word of God comes from. And it comes from the same grace of God that saves us and the same power of the Holy Spirit that raises us from death to life. Verses, uh, the second part of verse 124 and 125 read, teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. 
So the psalmist prays for God to teach him his statutes. He prays for understanding from God to know his testimonies and obey. It's a common refrain through Psalm 119 because the whole psalm, this lengthy psalm, is all about God's word. And it's a common refrain uh, throughout Psalm 119 to pray that God will supply the understanding of his word to obey. Now, it's remarkable here. I don't know if you noticed this, but notice the order of the psalm's prayer here. Notice what he asks for first and why he asks for it. The psalmist asks God for understanding first before knowledge. He asks for understanding before knowledge. In fact, he asks for understanding to enable him to know God's testimonies. That's not normally the way we think about things, is it? How can you understand something before you know it? But the psalmist says, God, give me understanding so that I can know it. This verse is embracing a doctrine of scripture that we call divine illumination. Divine illumination. Your knowledge of scripture requires the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind first so that you can know the word of God truly. 1 Corinthians 2.10 speaks of God's word given to his people and imparting his wisdom. And it says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And verse 12 says that we receive the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God has given us these truths, but we can't receive them unless the Holy Spirit enables us to understand them. Have you heard the expression when somebody has an idea? They say, a light bulb went on. Have you heard the other expression when someone about someone who uh, doesn't have all the lights turned on upstairs? People, we don't have the lights turned on upstairs. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man is not able to understand the things of God. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. And natural man is spiritually dead. The lights are off. So in order to understand the things that are spiritually discerned, the lights have to be turned on. That's why we call it the doctrine of illumination. What does illumination mean? It means turning the lights on. You need God to turn the lights on. To know the word of God, you need the work of the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. And then, and then you need uh, in order to obey the word of God, you need the work of the Holy Spirit once more. You still need the Holy Spirit. Uh, first to understand and then to obey. Old Testament believers knew this too. Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh, 36, 26 and 27 gave God's people this promise. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear this? 
if you manage to obey God, it is only because God has put his spirit within you to cause you to walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. It is grace upon grace upon grace. Grace to give you new life. Grace to give you understanding of God's word. Grace to work obedience into your life. You need God. There is never a moment for you when your need for God is ever diminished in any way. You need God. But the good news is that God has promised to supply that grace. God has promised grace to save you from your sin. He has promised grace to sustain you in obedience. And now we're ready to go back to verse 121. Uh, These first two verses of the stanza say, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. The Christian stands ready and eager for the day of judgment. And the Christian is not afraid of the day of judgment. The Christian is not afraid of oppression in this world, nor of judgment in the next, because the Christian stands on the promises of God. Now, there will come a day of judgment. According to Acts 17.31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The psalmist in these two verses is uh, asking, for safety from his oppressors, and a pledge of good for himself, saying, I have done what is just and right. How can he claim this? How can he say, I have done what is just and right? Jesus told us in Matthew 12, 36, that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of that day, saying that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What does that mean? I will warn you that some people will tell you that it means your entry into heaven is based on what you do in life, on your works, on what you've done in the body. And at best, those people will tell you, well, don't worry, don't worry, it's still grace. It's still grace because, you see, God will supply the good works that you need in order to get to heaven. Um, Brothers and sisters, please do not be deceived. Justification is by faith alone. As John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you have believed upon Christ, then you have already passed from death to life. The life in Christ is already yours. The miracle of regeneration, the miracle of new life has already happened in you. The life that he promised is already yours. So there is no other justification. There is no other judgment You have passed from death to life. The only basis for that 
It is not your works. It is not anything you do. It is not based on uh, the works of the flesh. It is based on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you receive it by faith alone. And yet, there will be a day of judgment. And uh, what do we do with this? Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What does that mean for us? The reason you will not suffer judgment for your sins on that day is because the penalty for that judgment has already been paid. So you will stand before the throne of the Lord. The reason you won't be judged is because you will stand before a Savior who has already suffered that judgment, which means there is none left for you to suffer. It's already paid. The account is already clear. Colossians 2.14 declares that Christ has already canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, which means that on that judgment day you will stand before the throne of God with the penalty for your sin already paid, with your account already wiped clean, and yourself clothed with the righteousness of Christ to receive the reward that he purchased for you in light of what he has done in and through you. There is no judgment remaining for the believer. That's why you don't have to fear the judgment day. That's why the judgment day is something that you can look forward to eagerly and gladly. You have nothing left to be judged for, so there is no judgment for you. Judgment has already happened. It's already been poured out on Jesus Christ, your Savior. All that's left for you on Judgment Day is to receive the reward that he's purchased for you. Whatever I have done that is just and right is what Christ has done in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And my sin is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. When the psalmist says, I have done what is just and right, it serves the function of 1 John 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whatever good he's done shows the work of the Holy Spirit in him. And it shows that he belongs to Christ so that he will not be judged for his actions, but will receive a reward for the work of Christ in and through him. Therefore, in Christ... Because he bore my sins, I can approach my God and say that by the grace of the Spirit, I have done what is just and right. And I can ask my Father, because of what Christ has done, to give your servant a pledge of good. What's the basis for that pledge? It's the work of Jesus Christ. And this means for me that I'm safe. I'm safe in this life and I'm safe in the next, my oppressors cannot harm me because God is just. The day of judgment for me is a promise. I can trust in it now, and I can be eager for that day to come. And the psalmist, you see, is eager for that day to come. In verse 126, he prays, 
It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. God will bring judgment. And that judgment will right every wrong of the world. But it will be the Lord who acts, and he will do it according to his timing. We can look around and we can see all of the sin in the world today, and we can say, God, the time for judgment has come. The time has come for God to act. And we can pray that knowing that God will act, and he will not act a day late. It will be according to his perfect timing uh, and not ours. We can trust, in fact, that he is acting even now. He is acting. Because we know that he is just, because we know that he has a purpose for day of judgment, we can know that God is at work now. That he is not, he, he will not allow any wrong that will not be righted on the day of judgment. But the action and the purposes belong to God. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we are called to leave vengeance and justice to God, it teaches us that he will bring it about rightly, that we can actually trust him uh, to bring about justice in perfection. We're safe. The timing also belongs to God. And this too means that we can trust him in that timing. That he's not allowing things to happen that, that, that are beyond his control and he, he, he's going he's to lose the thread and, and, and he's, he's, he's not going to be able to fix this. The timing belongs to God. Which means that from our perspective, we may wait and may wait longer uh, than we, uh, we would have chosen for ourselves. But 2 Peter 3.9 says this does not mean the Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason we wait is because God is working out his purposes to establish and build his church. God's word is a promise. It's a promise that you never have to question. And it is better, more valuable, more trustworthy than money in the bank. The last two verses of the stanza read as follows. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. God's word is a gracious promise for us. It is a promise that we have been saved by grace because Christ Jesus was crucified for our sins. It is a promise that his spirit will sustain us in obedience until the day we meet him face to face. It is a promise that we need not fear our oppressors in this life because God is just and he will judge sin. And it's a promise that on that day, because our sin has already been judged, that there will be no more judgment for us, but only our reward in Christ. His word is a promise. It is true. It is right. And it is our treasure. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.